Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, good evening. Well done for making it through both of those readings. Do turn back to Genesis 19. We're carrying on our series in Genesis, so it's back on page 19. Uh, if it helps you, there's, um, there's a handout just to, um, tucked in with the other things that you've got. Um, I'm going to pray for the Lord's help as we get, uh, begin. Our Father God, we pray that this evening as we come to this passage, Genesis 19, that your word would be our guide, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. Amen. Well, what a chapter. What a chapter. I don't know if you can um, think what your favorite passage of the Bible is. Uh, I sometimes ask, uh, ask people that. I've never met anyone who said that Genesis 19 was their favorite passage of the Bible. And if you tell me afterwards that it is, I don't know that I'll believe you. Um, we're warned by our politicians about the dangers of religious fundamentalism. And when we come to a chapter like Genesis 19, don't we worry that that's exactly what we're being exposed to. Uh, perhaps you're here this evening and you're exploring the Christian faith. And this is exactly the sort of passage that you think maybe will gives you an excuse to dismiss the Bible as a whole. After all, um, this is the text from which we get the phrase fire and brimstone, and no one on the door has ever told me that what they want is more fire and brimstone in the preaching. It's a passage full of appalling violence and immorality where the treatment of other human beings is terrifying, frankly. And yet... If the Bible is God's word to us, then it's not up to us to pick and choose which passages that we read from and learn from. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we work through books of the Bible here at Christchurch Fullwood, just looking at the next passage after the one that came before. I'm aware we've um, had a week off for a special service last week, but we just work our way through books of the Bible because we want to hear what God has on his agenda uh, if you open up the BBC News app on your phone, um, I'd plead with you not to do that till the end of the sermon, but if you do that, you'll find a world that is broken and fallen and full of brutality. And if God in his wisdom has chosen to speak of that in Genesis 19, then perhaps we should listen. Uh, but more than that, uh, in the second reading we had from Luke 17, we saw that Jesus... Jesus Christ refers to these events in Genesis 19 as real historical events and ones that hold a real warning for you and me. Uh, Jesus in Luke 17 says, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember this passage and remember that God has acted in judgment in the past and that he will do it again that he will hold the sins of our wicked world accountable. Uh, I remember that um, as um, a young boy, my mum would often warn me about um, uh, slamming, uh, leaving my fingers near doors where they could be, um, they could be slammed in. And, um, uh, and like many a, a young boy, I was fairly indifferent to my mother's warnings um, until the day that we got a train to London and it's um, emblazoned on my mind because it was, um, it, it was the kind of old wooden slam door trains, if you've ever seen such a thing. And my fingers were located right 
on the, uh, the edge of the door when a passing commuter slammed it shut. And I really listened to my mother's warnings after that had happened, at least when it came to slamming my fingers indoors. Uh, you see, it had happened once, and so I was all ears to hear the warning about the future. And you see, Jesus Christ points to Genesis 19 and he says to us, God has acted in judgment against wickedness in our world. It's happened in history. And so we should be all ears when he warns us that it will happen again. It's a chapter in which we see that God will judge our wicked world. God will destroy our world and all its wickedness. Let's just remind ourselves of the story. Back in Genesis 18, two weeks ago, uh, we saw that God told Abraham that he was going to hold the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole plain around them accountable for the wickedness that he has heard of. And Abraham pleaded with the Lord to remember his promises, not to sweep away his people along with those who are guilty of this wickedness. Uh, And God agreed Um, to Abraham's plea, and he said that he would send these two angels to inspect the city and to see if it was as bad as it was heard to be. Here in chapter 19, we see that the angels inspect the city, that they rescue one believer and his family, and that the rest of the city are just as wicked as they're heard to be. And God completely destroys both of those cities, all their inhabitants, and all the vegetation on the plain. Not even a plant will grow. And it is a warning that God will completely destroy a wicked world that rejects him. And I wonder how you feel as you hear me saying these words. Maybe it sounds like fire and brimstone preaching. Maybe it sounds like preaching from a bygone era. Have I woken up on Sunday evening and I'm back in the Victorian period or something like that? But look again at Genesis 19 and see the justice of God in acting like this, that it is a just judgment. Uh, Back in chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord said to Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I will know. You see, God says to Abraham, he is going out of his way to inspect this city and to see if what they have done is as bad as it's heard to be. You see, when God acts in this way in Genesis 19, he's not flying off the handle. He's not acting rashly or on a whim. This is not some irritable headmaster in the sky who just loses it and flies off the handle. No, he carefully assesses the situation And so the angels are sent, verse 1, to the city of Sodom. Uh, Lot meets them at the gateway of the city, the, the place where the big names would meet to trade and to settle cases. And he, he, persuades them to come and stay with him. In verse 3, they enter his house. He puts on this, this meal for them. But verse 4, Before they'd all gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, 
Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Notice in verse 4 that all the people of Sodom are represented. It's underlined for us. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old. And notice too the barbaric and horrendous seriousness of the sin that they're talking about in verse 5. We're talking about the sort of gang rape that you read about in the Rwandan genocide or in Iraq under the Islamic State or Boko Haram committing in northern Nigeria. I mean, make no bones about it. This is a horrible, horrible situation. And when Lot refuses, it's clear that they, will, they intend to treat him and his family even worse than these two men, these angels. Verse 9, he say, they say, now he wants to play the judge over us. We'll treat you worse than them. And so we read God's verdict in verse 13. The angels say, we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. You see the justice of God in this? That when God sees this terrible wickedness, he cannot stand by passive. He must act. And listen, let me say, isn't this something that we want in our hearts Uh, when we read about the sort of things that happen in Iraq under the Islamic State, when we hear about northern Nigeria, the unspeakable things that human beings do one to another, and there's no hope of justice in this life, do our hearts not cry out for something to be done? Um, I was reading this afternoon about um, the, um, the bookkeeper of Auschwitz, Uh, Maybe you've read about him, 96-year-old man who died this week having never faced justice for his complicity in 300,000 murders. Do our hearts not cry out for something to be done about evil in the world? And here is a God who sees wickedness and who acts decisively to destroy the wickedness that he encounters Well, what then is the sin of Sodom? I mean, after all, in the English language, it's come down to us as a word that's sort of um, thrown at um, homosexual sex, uh, sex between um, two people of the same sex. And, um, and, And there's certainly that element to what's going on here, but there's also this edge of violence to what they do. They're talking about gang rape. And so what exactly is the sin of Sodom? That is so wicked. Well, you see it in verses 7 and 9, because in verse 7, the heart of it comes out as Lot says, don't do this wicked thing. And then in verse 9, get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. And it's words that that echo the way that Abraham described the Lord back in Genesis 18 and verse 25, when Abraham calls him the judge of all the earth. You see, here is um, 
uh, here is a believer who is um, who's saying to these people, don't do what is wicked in the eyes of the judge of all the earth. And they will not let God be the judge of right and wrong in their lives. And you see, um, the Bible in various places talks about Sodom and reflects on the sin of Sodom. And it talks about a range of different things, but they all boil down to this one thing, that they would not let God be the judge of right and wrong in their lives. And we see at the forefront of that here, sex and violence. And how often do we hear that in our culture today? How dare you judge me about my sexuality? Who are you Christians to tell us that what we do is wicked? And here is the sin of Sodom, very familiar in our culture. Not letting God be the judge of right and wrong in their lives and perhaps most of all in their sexuality. And we need to be very clear about this. That the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Uh, The Bible is quite unambiguous that any sexual relationship outside of God's intended pattern for safe sex, which is a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman, is wrong and wicked before the Lord. Lustful thoughts, pornography, which is, after all, an industry built on the sexual abuse of strangers, adultery, multiple sexual partners, serial monogamy, in many cases, divorce and remarriage. And yes, sexual partnerships between people of the same sex are wrong in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible is quite unambiguous that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And look, it might be that you're here this evening and you are outraged to hear me say that. But the question is, will we... Let God be the judge of right and wrong in our lives. Or will we insist on being the judge ourselves? And listen, I'm aware that these are personal and painful issues for many. I can't think how many people's buttons I will have pressed this evening just trying to open up what the Bible says. Um, Let me just mention two things. Uh, the um, The first is an excellent book Um, which explores some of these these things further, called Revolutionary Sex by William Taylor. Uh, You'll find in the the online bookstall on our website a link to that. Um, I'm afraid I don't have a stack of copies next to the um, uh, Easter uh, Easter Uncovered book, but do do talk to me afterwards and we'll um, we'll get you copies if you want to think about these things further. But hear the warning... Of Genesis 19, the warning of Jesus Christ. God will judge a wicked world. Our world says, no, these things are just inoffensive preferences. That there are some things that are violent and wrong, but many of the things that you've talked about are just inoffensive preferences. But they are not. And we need to resist that lie. God cares intensely when his good design for safe sex is tampered with. And in his justice, he will hold a wicked world accountable. 
But notice too in this chapter that as God destroys a wicked world, it's not without loving warnings. Verse 12, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry against the Lord, um, uh, to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought that he was joking. See, um, Lot's guests reveal that they're, they're divine by striking the men blind, by protecting Lot. And then they tell him, warn the sons-in-law. And out he goes and he warns them. And of course, it's a It's an all too familiar scene in some ways because they think that the warning of judgment is a joke. And I wonder how often in our culture talk of future judgment is nothing more than a joke to us. The man on the street with the sandwich board saying that judgment is coming is a figure of fun in our culture, isn't he? And that's how we deal with it. But the Lord sends loving warnings to these people And verse 23, by the time that Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and then, you know, I I suspect that there were very few in Sodom who thought that as the sun rose, it was their last morning on earth. But then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. He overthrew those cities and the entire plains, destroying all those living in them, and also the vegetation in the land. And if that feels extreme, if that feels fire and brimstone to us, we need to remember that Jesus Christ, Jesus, the most loving man who's ever lived, warned people in the most graphic terms about the danger of rejecting God and facing his judgment on the last day. Um, Jesus, who welcomed every kind of person, who welcomed the downtrodden, the poor, and the immoral, warned them in the most graphic terms to turn from sin and trust in the promise of God. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the scriptures. Uh, Jesus talked about a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a fire that will never go out, an eternal conscious suffering. Jesus, who loved like no man loved, warned people in the frankest terms that God will hold our world accountable, that God will judge a wicked world. Two, Two boys playing on a building site and a passing stranger shouts out to them, get out! The building is about to be destroyed. You'll surely die. And in that moment, the boys have to decide whether he's there to to kill their afternoon's fun or to lovingly warn them of the danger that they face. And Jesus warns people that just as God held Sodom and Gomorrah accountable, he will hold our wicked world accountable and destroy all evil. And I wonder, have you heard Jesus' warning But more than that, how is your loving concern for others? How is your loving concern for others? Do you love those who you know and your neighbors and friends and family enough to warn them that God will destroy our wicked world? 
God will destroy a wicked world. But then we see too in Genesis 19 that God will rescue those who believe his promise. Um, It's instructive to compare Abraham and Lot in Genesis 18 and 19. Um, In verse 1, Lot uh, meets the angels. He bows down to them and he begs them to stay with him, just as Abraham did. Uh, He's clearly a believer. He prepares a meal for them. See, he wants to welcome God. He trusts God, but it's also clear that he is not a good man. Uh, He's not um, a a perfect and flawless and righteous man, a man who deserves to be rescued. Uh, For a start, where Abraham offered um, the angels a feast uh, of uh, the best meat and um, and just a whole bakery full of bread, uh, in verse 3, Lot puts on the equivalent of a few old slices of toast. He prepared a meal for them, breaking bread without yeast, and they ate. And, um, and Lot just keeps on getting things wrong in this passage. He bravely goes outside the door to defend his guests. But then in verse 8, he makes this appalling suggestion about offering his daughters to the crowd. And it ends with the angels rescuing Lot. Uh, Lot is given a clear warning in verse 15. Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. He's given a clear warning, but verse 16, he hesitates. And it's deeply ironic, because um, Lot's name in Hebrew uh, sounds like the Hebrew word meaning run away. And he's told again and again in the passage to flee, to run away. Verse 15, verse 17, verse 19, verse 20. There's all this talk of running away, of doing a lot, and yet he hesitates. He loves life in that city. He sees the wickedness, but he also sees things that he likes. And he hesitates. But the Lord rescues him anyway. And this is the mercy of God in this chapter, that here is one who is not a good man, not a man deserving of rescue. And yet verse 16, when he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And maybe you've experienced this kind of mercy Uh, Maybe you've hesitated and wondered about the life that you left behind before you became a Christian and you've you've almost thought of going back but the Lord has taken you by the hand in his mercy and held on. Uh, Maybe this term you've been putting the brakes on spiritually but God has held on and not let go in his mercy. Lot hesitates. Uh, He also starts to negotiate in verses 18 to 20. He he says to them, um, uh, I can't flee to the mountains. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it's small. Let let me flee to it. Uh, He negotiates with the angels. And again, it's deeply ironic. Abraham pleaded for the people of Sodom for their mercy and protection on those who believed. And here is Lot pleading for a city for his own sake, his own comfort and safety. And verse 29 explains to us why this um, mixed-up, half-hearted man was saved. Verse 29 When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. 
See, the story of Genesis is really the story of God's promise to Abraham, the story of God's promise that he would reverse the consequences of sin that led to death and curse, so that instead of facing God's judgment, those who believed his promise would receive his blessing, God's people in his place, dwelling in right relationship with him. Uh, You can see it in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And here in Lot, we have one who believed that promise. Abraham, in Genesis 18, had prayed to God not to sweep away those who believed the promise, uh, the righteous, as they're called in Genesis 18, with the wicked. And here, God remembered Abraham, a believer, and brought him out. Uh, Galatians 3 in the New Testament tells us that that promise to Abraham was the gospel in miniature, the promise that one day Jesus, the Christ, would bear the destruction of God in our place so that we don't have to. And here Lot believed the promise. Not not a good man, but one who believed God's promise of mercy. And he stands in stark contrast in that regard to the men of Sodom because when they hear the warning in verse 15, they thought he was joking. But you see, here is the mercy of God in our world. A a gracious God who holds out a promise of rescue and safety to anyone who will trust him, who will just believe his promise. Uh, Maybe you know the story of John Newton. Uh, He was a slave trader and a deeply immoral man. He'd grown up in a Christian family hearing the gospel, but he'd turned away from it and got involved in um, all sorts of, um, of just terrible treatment of other human beings. But 1747, he was caught in a storm and he cried out to God and said, I want to believe your promises. I want to become a Christian. He thought he was going to die. But actually, he survived the storm and he went on to write these famous words, very, very famous hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And you see, this is the mercy of our God. In a wicked world, wicked people are given a promise of rescue if they'll trust him. And it might be that you're here this evening and you feel like a Christian who has often failed, as many of us do, And here we see the mercy and grace of God to those who who just believe his promise, who trust him. Have you heard his warning? Have you heard his, his promise in the gospel? But then finally, just for our last few minutes, notice thirdly in this passage the terrible consequences of loving a wicked world. Just briefly, let's think about the closing verses of this chapter. Because you see, um, Lot is a believer in God's promise. God, God rescues Lot. He has mercy on him. And yet we've also got this tension that Lot is a believer who is drawn to the, to the world in rebellion against God. Um, he walks as close to the line of sin as he can without trying not to cross it. 
Uh, We saw back in Genesis 13, if you were here um, with us, that Abraham basically says to Lot, um, we're too wealthy, we've got too much stuff, too many people, too many animals, and the promised land is big, pick a side, you live on one side and I'll live on the other. And Lot said, "Mm, I'd kind of prefer to live right on the edge of the land next next to Sodom. And so off Lot went to live there. Here in Genesis 19, we see that he's now in the city at the city gate, the place where the big names did trade and made decisions. He's fully involved in the life of the city. Lot is someone who was rescued with the skin on his back. But we also see a warning here in the things that surround Lot and the way that the story ends. Uh, Verse 26 We're told that Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, it's hard to work out the difference between Lot and his wife in this passage. Um, I I think the best I can give you is that um, Lot's wife disobeyed a clear command from God in verse 17 not to look back. You see, we're to see that this was not a quick glance over the shoulder. Uh, When faced with the opportunity to be rescued, Lot's wife... Well, she chose Sodom. She looked back with longing on the life in the wicked world that she'd had. You know, it's like the YouTube clip of the man with one foot in a boat and the other foot on the shore, and the two are getting further apart, and something bad is going to happen. And here is someone who, they're holding on to God in one way, but, but she's looking back to the wicked world and loving it, and something bad happens and she dies. And it's interesting that when Jesus is commenting on this text, his big application is remember Lot's wife. Read Genesis 19 and and don't think to yourself, well, Lot had the best of both worlds because he got as close to the line as he could without crossing it and still got rescued. Because look, Lot was saved, but his wife, who who was so similar to him, well, she fell in love with the wicked world. And she was lost. Uh, Jesus gives a brilliant diagnostic in that second reading, Luke 17. He says, whoever tries to keep their life in this world will lose it. But whoever loses their life will keep it. You see, the test is, how do you feel about the stuff you own in this life? Are we willing to lose our possessions, our home, our savings, our pension, if necessary, to follow Jesus? Would you live just as contentedly with Jesus and nothing as you do now with Jesus and whatever it is you have? See, if there are things in our lives we're we're holding on to with a closed fist and we won't let God be judge of right and wrong or Lord over those things, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Do you love those things more than you love the rescuing God? We're to hear the warning and to turn back to his promise of mercy, to open the hand on the things that we are in danger of loving. But then notice too the terrible consequence for Lot and for his family. Because in verses 30 to 38, we see that although Lot was rescued, his love of the world had painful results for all those around him really, including himself. You know, he was a wealthy man who ends up living in a cave 
One by one, his two daughters get him drunk and sexually abuse him, just as he'd um, offered them for sexual abuse earlier in the story. Here's a man who, through his sin, loses his home, his wife, and now his dignity. Here are two girls who've learned far more from the world than they ever did from their father. And I think um, for dads here like me, that should give us pause, shouldn't it? That here are two young women who learned far more from the world than they did from their father. And then the two children who were born, Moab and ben well, their descendants were the Israelites' worst and most violent neighbors. And you see how the consequences of Lot's sin affect everyone around him and echo down through the generations, causing untold hurt and pain. You know, I've never um, seen a TV advert that um, tells you that this product is very, very unhealthy and bad for you and you shouldn't eat it at all. And sin is the same. You know, sin is never advertised to us. It never comes to us and says, I am bad for you and will hurt those around you. No, we, um, we hold things with a closed hand and we won't let God be judge of right and wrong precisely because we think it will be better for us. And Genesis 19, Lot stands as a warning that turning away from God and his rules is always and only bad for us and those around us. Remember Lot's wife, but remember Lot who was rescued, but only just and only at great cost to those around him. Because I close, let me just say, wherever you stand this evening, will you hear this loving warning from God? God will destroy a wicked world, but he's a merciful God. Will you give yourself to listening to his promises and warnings and trusting him? Or are there other things that we love more? Where's your heart this evening? Will you come back to him and trust him and turn your back on the wicked world that is destined for destruction? Let me pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would give us grace to hear your words and to believe them. In Jesus' name, amen.